0: This is the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Claire Barnes, one of the hosts of the podcast, and I'm very excited to welcome our guest today, Mike Jay. Jay has written extensively on scientific and medical history and contributes regularly to the London Review of Books and the Wall Street Journal. His previous books on the history of drugs include Mescaline, High Society, and The Atmosphere of Heaven. Today, We're here to talk about Jay's new book with Yale University Press, Psychonauts, Drugs and the Making of the Modern Mind. From Sigmund Freud's experiments with cocaine to William James' epiphany on nitrous oxide, Jay brilliantly recovers a lost intellectual tradition of drug taking that fed the birth of psychology, the discovery of the unconscious, and the emergence of modernism. Welcome, Mike, to the podcast.
1: Oh, pleasure to be here, Claire.
0: Thanks so much. So I'm really excited to start with the two standout phrases in the title, um, Psychonauts and the Modern Mind. And, you know, in, in the first couple chapters of the book, you discuss how many early adopters and users of cocaine hypothesized that it placated rising anxieties from modernity. You know, as you write, um, you know, modernity is kind of a broad concept, but for example, um advancing science, the accelerated speed of life, global diffusion of knowledge, mass marketing, consumer choice, and individual freedom. This is a quote from one of the first couple chapters. You know, and this is really a fascinating discussion. Um, can you define psychonauts for our listeners and then talk more about their concerns with modernity?
1: Sure. Uh, well, the word psychonaut, um, really means somebody who uses drugs to explore the mind, a kind of explorer of inner space. And it's a term that was uh, uh, coined by the, uh, in the 1940s by the uh, German novelist Ernst Jünger in one of his uh, novels. And uh, it's a very useful term uh, for me in approaching the subject of this book because, uh, um, you know, like most people i guess i grew up um sort of with the impression that drugs kind of suddenly appeared in the 1960s and there wasn't much western history of them before then so this is really about uh you know my ongoing discovery that as you know when you once you go back before the 20th century um uh, then most Western um, scientists and doctors who were investigating the effects of drugs on the mind were psychonauts. that is uh, they um, uh, you know the, the, the standard way of proceeding if you were uh, trying to discover what mind-altering drugs did was to take them yourself and to uh, experience and then describe their effects. So um, so, so, so that's that's the title and, um, The period that I'm focusing on uh, mostly through the book is the uh, late 19th century and which was a period, uh, and the early 20th century, which was a period obsessed with uh, modernity and its uniqueness and its discontents. I don't think you know any particular um, period of time has uh, can claim the title modern. I think it's more that modern is a word that tends to be used when people perceive that things are changing very, very fast. And uh, I think uh, what happened in this period was that uh, People started to realise that uh, you know the mind was not essentially an organ of reason. That uh, there was a, there was a part of it which was that, and our normal waking consciousness. But there were, the mind was more compli- complicated. There were um, it had uh, aspects that were hidden from us normally, that were sub- subliminal or unconscious, and. Um, uh, this was a, uh, and so you know the the kind of real towering figures, I guess, in this period of intellectual history are the ones that you mentioned at the beginning, um, Sigmund Freud and uh, William James, and they were both uh, scientists who experimented with drugs themselves and uh, produced very memorable descriptions of their experiences and used them in, in in quite different ways. And what I wanted to show in this book was that um, Freud and James were not of you know, unusual examples. They were not outliers. Many, many of their colleagues and people involved uh, in this period of research in the mind sciences um, were experimenting with drugs and that drug experiences um, fed into these new understandings of the mind.
0: Yeah, that that's very fascinating. And um, we'll get into um... Kind of the tradition of self-experimentation later, uh, but before I, we dive into really the content of the book, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you became interested in the influence of drugs on Western science, philosophy, and culture. I had um, been researching before, and you're also a curator, and so I'm wondering um, you know, if you can talk to us about your how you personally arrived at, um, at, at the, the themes of this book.
1: Right. Well, this was a, a, a furrow that I started um, sort of plowing, uh, I guess, about 20 <laughs> years ago, probably a bit more than that now. And um, it was uh, um, back in the 90s. I was a freelance journalist and um, I was also an early adopter of the internet and I was very struck at that point. One of the first most sort of striking things about the internet in those very early days among the sort of uh, alt news groups and bulletin boards was the enormous amount of conversation about um, drugs and drug experiences which contrasted so strikingly with the, the sort of mainstream media and the public conversation you know at that time in which Drugs were reflexively sort of framed as a problem, you know, a social problem or a medical problem or a crime problem, uh, you know, most of the conversation with them was about uh, addiction and crime and, you know, that sort of, you know, headlines about the, you know, negative effects and um you know whereas you know certainly where i was living here in london uh in the mid 1990s um drug experiences were part of this kind of tapestry of uh, of of normal life and um that was kind of reflected on the internet so i started uh, i started writing about that and um uh at the same time uh working um with uh, uh at the um at the, the welcome trust in london the uh, as it was then the um uh, the the, the welcome teaching center for the history of medicine with the wonderful resources of the uh, of of the welcome library uh and um drug history at that point was quite a small field and it was very very pop down it was kind of almost all about you know the construction of the modern notion of addiction or the origins of the development of drug control systems it was very much framed from the point of view of the experts looking down on the drug users and uh, I started to get interested in um, drug user testimony and um, drug experience so the more sort of bot- bottom up sense of what these drugs were and what they did and why people took them and who were the first people to take them and uh, how they experienced them and how their meanings got constructed as they uh, filtered out into the wider culture. So that was the point at which I started assembling this material. I guess the first thing I produced in writing was uh, I edited an anthology for Penguin of uh, drug writings called Artificial Paradises and actually just looking back at that uh, recently, I remember that I actually had a section of about self experimentation in it. So from that point on, I've had this kind of large mass of material and uh, I've approached it in different ways. And um, uh, as a freelance writer, as you mentioned, I've written about other things, uh, scientific and medical history. Uh, You tend to develop kind of specialisms and feedback loops. If you write about something, then People notice and ask you to write something else about it, and then you become the go to person for this. And that kind of happened to me with sort of the history of drugs and drug culture. And yeah, as I said, one of the things, um, themes that really interested me from way back in the day was um, self experimentation and how that worked when scientists who were studying drugs um, took them themselves. So this is something that's been kind of quite a long standing interest, but I've never had the chance before to. uh, make self-experimentation, um, you know, the central motor of the um, narrative for telling this story. So that's what I've wanted to do that for a long while. And that's what I've done with psychonauts.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there are really, you know, great accounts of self-experimentation, you know, from the kind of major figures that we had talked about, but also, you know, figures throughout this history, which which I think um, our listeners will really find fascinating. And, you know, I, I want to turn to your discussion of, of Freud now in the first couple of chapters, and you know in the first chapter called "The Elixir of Life," you discussed Sigmund Freud's own you know endorsement of cocaine and experimentations with cocaine, and I'm wondering what archives or sources did you you know call on to explore this aspect of the book, you know, and and I was uh, particularly struck by you know you have you have a discussion of. And all of this was kind of happening before the term drug entered into our common use day usage. Um, but, you know, I, I'm really fascinated to hear what type of archives or letters um, you use to kind of paint this early picture of, of what we would now call drug use.
1: Right. Well, um, Sigmund Freud's own writing is an interesting entry point. Um, I mean, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people know that um, uh, Freud had a um, a period of experimenting with cocaine and writing about it in the 1880s before you know he discovered hysteria and psychoanalysis and uh, most people have a sense that it turned out badly and that's about uh, most of what most people know. There's a kind of a kind of consensus about it because um obviously by the time freud became famous cocaine had become a demonized drug so he never reprinted his papers and they're not part of his collected works his first biographer ernest jones uh referred to it as the cocaine episode and so it was a kind of juvenile aberration and skipped over it very quickly and and this is sort of you know rare um an you know, area of consensus with the anti-Freudians, who also have pointed at this series of experiments and said, "See, there you go. Freud was just a cocaine addict." And uh, so nobody has really had a good word to say about this, and it did turn out very badly for all kinds of reasons. But um, it's very. Uh, It was a a very um, promising field of inquiry when it started out, and it ran into, um, you know, uh, controversies that uh, tell us a lot about uh, that period. So I kind of started with Freud's writings, particularly Uber Koker, his first um, paper, which is very interesting from a literary as well as a scientific point of view. Describing drug experience is, in a way, a hybrid uh, endeavour. It has a scientific aspect and also has a literary aspect. And um, Freud exercised those both to the full in a style that he never really used again. And um, then uh, he wrote a succession of other papers about it. And um, by that time, he was kind of of the most respected medical expert on cocaine in its early days, which are talking the mid 1880s, uh, and when it was a a a, a, a drug of enormous interest uh, across the board, so there's a huge scientific and medical literature about it. So uh, in um, uh, scientific scientific and medical journals are absolutely full of uh, material about it, and it was also great interest to the general public, which I think we can you know we can see if we uh, just look back at. Um, you know the popular literature of the period, where of course we've got we've um, got Sherlock Holmes, we've got Jekyll and Hyde, loads of the kind of enormous blockbusting um, uh, sort of fictions of that period are about um, drug use and self experimentation and uh, and 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 its its possibilities and dangers. And there's a huge um, literature of kind of lesser known material underneath that. So it's kind of simultaneously a scientific and a social uh history and within science there are many many different strands because it uh it was became obvious uh, from quite early on that cocaine had a lot of very interesting and different properties uh it was a topical anaesthetic uh so it was adopted straight away into uh, uh surgery particularly eye surgery which it was it made all kinds of things possible that hadn't been possible before it also turned out to be um a stimulant and a, a performance enhancer. So there's a large literature about how cocaine boosts energy and boosts intelligence and, you know, makes us perform at our, you know, at, at, at our peak capacity. Um, there's a large literature about cocaine as um, as, as an antidepressant. Um, and it also has, you know, much more um, basic medical uses, for example, uh, uh, as a sort of um, uh, you know for the throat and nose and you know bronchial and sinus problems it became a specifically a medication for that and on top of all these things it um produced euphoria it made people feel very very good and this was uh obviously something that was um developed by the people the people who were sort of turning cocaine into a big sort of uh, mainstream pharmaceutical product at this point. Uh, this was a big selling point. It was a remedy for the blues. It was something that made you feel better. But there were other doctors and scientists for whom this was a problem. And this was uh, initially um, doctors and superintendents at uh, nerve clinics, you know, um, private clinics, for people with nervous and uh, mental health issues, who were the first people to say, um, yes, cocaine makes you euphoric, but particularly in combination with the um, hypodermic needle, which was just coming into use at this point, um, it's possible, you know, some people get obsessed with it and start taking enormously large doses of it, and their tolerance um, goes up very, very fast, and within a matter of days, they uh, unravel and kind of have uh, have nervous breakdowns. So uh, this euphoria that was for one class of scientists um, and uh, and doctors and pharmacists a great selling point for others was a sign of its danger. Uh, and And it's quite interesting to see that these two, you know, the way that these different strands develop. I mean, we still have the same thing with drugs when a new drug comes along, psychedelics or whatever. We all kind of want to know what does science think. Well, it you know it turns out that um, you know it depends on the questions that you ask. Science as to what it thinks. You know, so just as we have today with uh, um, with with, with mind altering drugs, you know, one literature about um, their dangers and their neurotoxicity and so on. We have another literature that's about their great possibilities for therapy, or as antidepressants, or for you know uh, uh, you know experiencing you know life at it's richest, and um, this, and I think um, cocaine at this period is really the sort of paradigm example of that. You know, what did science think? Well, it depended which branch of science you asked.
0: Yeah, that that's that's super interesting. Um, and you know, I I was particularly struck in, in kind of the first chapters, especially when thinking about uh, the adoption of of these different. Um, drugs into medical medical arenas that um, you know, you had mentioned that the euphoric, these euphoric experiences were a way to avoid life that was so plagued by pain at that point um, and have, you know, really interesting discussions of the ways in which uh, armies and, and the military used these used drugs as well um, and, you know, a really fascinating discussion of the anesthetic revolution. And you there's actually, you know, really great illustrations in, in this book um, and there's one of James Young. Um, Simpson, a surgeon from the University of Edinburgh, who uh, you know discovers chloroform's anesthetic properties in his living room through self-experimentation, as as we've been talking about. Um, and you know we've talked a little a little bit about self-experimentation um, and kind of the men who have been pioneering it, but. Uh, This illustration is uh, was really interesting to me because there was a discussion of the role that women played in in these experiments. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Um, What role did they play? You know, were there any exceptional stories in a field which, you know, um, from the dive into the book was relatively male male dominated? Can you talk a little bit more um, about that?
1: Yeah, I mean science and medicine are pretty much exclusively white male domains in the 19th century. So um, it's no surprise that the large majority of scientific uh, experiments with mind-altering drugs are conducted by men. Um, There are, um, when women feature, they tend to feature as experimental subjects in um, James Young Simpson's case, uh, for example, as you say, he was the um, surgeon. Um, he was Queen Victoria's physician. And this was shortly after uh, ether anesthesia had been developed in the uh, United States. And he was up in Edinburgh convinced that there must be something better than uh, ether, which is kind of horrible and toxic and smells bad and is flammable. Uh, and he experimented with all kinds of different solvents and compounds and uh, Yeah, he writes about uh, the moment when he and a couple of his uh, assistants experimented with um, chloroform. And um, uh, the first thing that uh, Simpson heard was like a couple of loud thumps from either side of him. And then the next thing he knew, he was on the carpet staring up at the underside of his table and... uh, um he and his colleagues looked at each other and went, great, well, I think this is the one then. And then they immediately started to do it again. And they obviously carried on experimenting with it to get a sense of it. And because this was in the family home, you get little snatches of testimony from um, this uh, wife and his niece uh, who, who were there and were part of the experiments. But you can also see you know, how, just how socially disturbing it was uh, for women to uh, be uh, intoxicated in company like this. Uh, one of the people who um, attended one of these dinners with um, Simpson was uh, the um, Danish storyteller Hans Christian Andersen and uh, he writes about uh, going around to dinner with the Simpson family and then after dinner they all inhale chloroform and um uh, uh Anderson is um is kind of unnerved and shocked by the sight of these women kind of in sort of uh intoxicated ecstasy with glassy eyes and uh it seems to him you know having kind of out-of-body experiences it seems to him very indecent and very shocking and i think that kind of gives us a sense of why we we don't get many more um female voices at the time. And indeed, you know, in the early 20th century, when you start to get the very first female psychologists, um, you know, there's still, um, you know, there are still shocking newspaper reports when it turns out that they're taking drugs in the course of their research. as for the female drug experience, more generally in the 19th century, there's more of it outside um, the sort of scientific arena. So I've looked also at um, the use of drugs like um, chloroform and hashish for um, kind of in psychic research and out of body experiences and also in um, occult and ceremonial magic. And there you find um, a small number of very courageous female voices. I've focused particularly on Maud Gonne, who is the uh, sort of uh, love object of uh, WB Yeats, who was obsessed by her for years and years. And she was an extremely powerful woman, very outspoken Irish Irish nationalist, um, very uh, powerful activist and campaigner, imprisoned many times. She was a pretty fearless woman and um, she writes a little bit about her um, uses of Hashish for uh, clairvoyance and for um, spiritual experimentation uh, in her memoirs, which are, which are published. Um, So those voices are there, but they're hard to find in a very male dominated era. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, actually, you know, my, my next question was about, about Mod Gon. So I'm glad that, that we had touched on that. And, and I, um, was really, you know, interested in, in the ways in, in which, uh, T- taking different psychoactive drugs um connected spirituality and the politics of freedom kind of and and these really interesting characters um and yeah i'm wondering can you can you tell us a little bit more about um you can talk you know more about mod or any any other kind of uh figures that you discuss that um are really conne- having connections between their spiritual experiences and their politics um
1: yeah, I mean, I think this is, this is one of the kind of less noticed effects of the retreat of a re- of religion in the 19th century. Uh, you know, that uh, long outgoing roar, uh, you know, that we, uh, you know, as, which is a kind of um, very much discussed and uh, story of the 19th century, the, uh, um, withdrawal of um, organized and established religion. I think one of the effects of it is that these kind of experiences, um, like um, out-of-body experiences or mystical experiences, which would, um, you know, a few decades earlier, have been routinely assumed to be religious experiences, now there are other possible frames of interpretation. Uh, it may be, you um, you know, you have a, a figure like William James with his experiments with nitrous oxide, which produced for him a mystical experience, which is fascinating. And, you know, I think sort of sets him on the trail of what will become his later life's work. Uh, he's working with people like the Society of Psychical Research who are interested in the uh, the idea that um, these kind of experiences might reveal a subliminal mind that we always have. And, that this, and for some people, it's possible that this... You know, this is just simply a malfunction of the brain, but uh, but others, you know, including some scientific figures, um, also see this as a sort of a way in which our minds might possibly reach outside of themselves and connect to um, other dimensions, Uh, you know, for spiritualists and theosophists. um, These experiences are um, glimpses of, uh, you know, the astral plane or the spirit realm. So I think it's part and parcel of this um, escape from the straitjacket of religion and the progressive attempts to um, forge, you know, not just a new um, uh, politics, but also a new metaphysics um, that you start to find um, figures. Yeah, like, for example, W.B. Yeats and Maud Gonne, for example, both united by a very deep fascination with Celtic um, mysticism, using uh, drugs like um, hashish to uh, aid their uh, meditations and their um, spiritual practices and uh, um, You'll find, and and, you know, you get figures that are more explicitly political, like Annie Besant, for example, you know, a great proponent of Indian nationalism and a theosophist, who also construed these drug experiences as being states in which, you know, the physical material body recedes and the, you know, the etheric or spiritual body comes to the fore. So it's a part of, I think, these um, progressive and political ideas, but it's not really ever used in a political way, um, because uh, most people in this media who used drugs were fairly discreet about their use of them because they were very aware of how easily they could be um you know uh, disparaged and how the whole um you know uh, progressive or political agenda could be um hijacked if its proponents were uh, exposed as kind of drug habitues uh you know which have the same kind of reputation then as it does now
0: mm. Mm, yeah that that's that's really interesting and i I'm wondering you know. I think I would like to return to the current um, kind of attitudes towards psychedelics now. Um, but before we do that, I was wondering if we could talk um, and touch on your discussion of race in the book. Um, and, you know, you, you briefly you, – you write briefly of a, an interesting inversion of the, the word slavery in the book. Um, quote – cocaine dependence was commonly described as slavery a term that positioned anti-drug campaigners and segregationists as the new abolitionists I was really struck by this but also you know I I think that this discussion um we, we need to we need to bring in racial dynamics so I want I was wondering if you could touch on how how you do that in the book um, and how um, uh you know racial dynamics and discrimination play out in this history
1: yeah I mean it's uh... Uh, I think it's a a fascinating question, Uh, I was, of of course, because of the um, sort of white um, male dominated kind of nature of um, science and medicine in this period, I was always on the lookout for um, uh, female figures, working class figures, uh, non-white figures, and you do find them in the 19th century. There's a fascinating um, character called pascal beverly randolph who i write about quite a bit Mm -hmm. who was a um a, a black spiritualist grew up in extreme um poverty in new york became a spiritualist and a trance channeler and a magical adept um a sex therapist or sex magician maybe uh he spent time in in Paris among the occultists there who had been uh, uh, using hashish for clairvoyance and for trance channeling. Uh, And um, he brought that back to America. And at uh, one point, I think probably in the 1860s, he was probably the largest importer of hashish into the uh, United States making magical elixirs for uh, healing and clairvoyance and so on. So you have these figures um, and um, but it's really in the kind of uh, early 1900s in the progressive era that um attitudes to uh, d- drugs and race get kind of codified for the first time um the 19th century i guess was a sort of um you know a century of liberal individualism by and large you know with with all its many racial disparities and 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 worse uh what happened in the early 20th century was um in the Progressive movement, um, then um, people started to be organized into kind of uh, mass cultures and mass, mass groups and so forth. So it's not really until the 20th century, when, as we mentioned, the word drugs appears for the first time, um, that you get um, a kind of stereotype of the drug user. During the 19th century, different types of people used drugs. I mean, you know, one of the more common stereotypes of the drug user then might be a kind of elderly widow, you know, rather melancholy with a rather empty life, taking a little bit too much morphine or something like that. But once you start to get to the 20th century, um, you start to get um a new science that um categorizes individuals into types. You have um not just scientific statistics, but things like um, actuarial tables used in, insur- in insurance. So you can see that um, uh, you know uh, heavy drinkers, uh, as a category, uh, have suffered from more chronic diseases and live longer. So you start to get these um, categories of uh, you know the drug user, uh, and this meshes with a racial science, which at that point um, kind of assumes that um, the effect of drugs is to diminish reason and uh, elevate the instincts so the people for whom this is most dangerous are people for whom reason is weak and instinct is powerful and this might be kind of uh, the mentally ill it might be criminals or delinquents but it is also specifically ethnic minorities so when you start to get the very first drug prohibitions they're directed really against ethnic minorities the very first in the United States in 1875 was a prohibition against opium use by chinese people in san francisco uh, and this is really you know a, uh, this is a tendency that's been developing through the um 19th century in um the in in the colonies you know where you've had um, you know drug prohibitions and drug prescriptions you know dating back to for example the, the napoleonic regimes um uh, prohibition of um hashish in Egypt. But by and large, this was something that stayed in the colonies. And uh, uh, what you start to see in the 20th century is these kind of um, categories and these kind of prohibitions being imposed on the West. And when you do that, you see straight away that different drugs are all, all have their kind of ethnic stereotype, you know, for opium, it's uh, the Chinese population for uh, cannabis, rechristened marijuana, it's the Mexican population. Uh, And for um, the uh, black population, particularly in the southern states, it's cocaine, which starts to be conceived as part of the problem. And, you know, the progressive era, you know, despite its name, uh, was uh, a coalition of all kinds of different tendencies, you know, and it, so it was, a you know, it empowered, you know, citizens and local government. And that was... You know, in many of the southern states, that was an empowerment of um, local citizens organizations and local governments to um, move towards segregation, um, you know, and to uh, conceive drug use as part of a race problem as well as a drug problem.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and, and I think because, you know, this book is such a rich account, we get a really nuanced um, picture of the way in which these stereotypes evolved and also just the long the long history that that existed you know before as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast um, you know in the 1960s and the 1970s <laughs> um, and that and that era of drug use. And you know one of my last questions is about the latter half of the book um, and, uh, you in in that you discuss the Harvard Psilocybin Project led by you know Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert who are kind of really well known figures of of this time, um, and also you talk about you know in the Progressive Era the the decline in in this funding for psychedelic research under JFK and different FDA policies that kind of tighten the restrictions and. Um, I'm wondering, you know, can you talk about the resurgence of the entrance of psychedelics now <laughs> in in this century, and um, at, you know, as they're being used um, and and put forth as as clinical tools and in clinical settings, and kind of uh, where does the book leave off? Where where are we now in in this landscape of drug use?
1: Right, yeah. I mean, what? well, where we are now is kind of usually categorized as the psychedelic renaissance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a renaissance, I guess, of what's called the original psychedelic era, which is the 1950s and the 1960s. And that's, of course, you know, the era when the word psychedelic was coined. So in that sense, it's the case. But um, what I'm trying to do by extending the time frame here and looking mm-hmm. back into the 19th century is showing that that Psychedelic era in the nineteen fifties and sixties was in itself a renaissance of a uh, tradition that was actually you know it goes right back to the beginning of science you know we start with the with with the Royal Society and you know which which puts experiment at the centre of science and you know from that point on self experiment has been uh, has has been part of it so. Um, I think um, what i suggest in the last part of the book is that there's a, you know there's a big rupture in this story around 1900 in the Progressive Era when we start to conceive of drugs as, uh, as problems and uh, we start to um, see them as things that need to be controlled and which are then prohibited and so on. And this dovetails also um, at that moment around 1900 with a decline of introspection in psychology, less interest in subjective experience, less interest in mystical experience, the rise of behaviorism, um, you know, a, a tilt in psychology towards just looking at, uh, you know, uh, visual uh, objective data, tabulating, response times and reactions and separating out the components of attention and um perception and um and, and and so on and i think the other thing that happens in you know the psychedelic era of the 1950s and the 1960s is uh, a reaction against behaviorism uh the return of a kind of positive psychology which is interested uh in inner experience and which is particularly interested in uh uh, mystical experience. So the, um, you know, the figures who are very influential on the uh, new ideas of the mind that develop in the psychedelic era, people like Abraham Maslow, um, you know, ideas of uh, self actualization and peak experience. These draw a lot on the work of um, William James, you know, just as the uh, early kind of, write, you know, the beat writers, people like um, William Burroughs were delving back into this period in the 19th century and finding uh, figures like, you uh, the um the sort of British engineer James Lee, who I write about in the book, who um writes a you know fascinating series, uh, memoirs about uh, his life of drug experimentation in the um sort of uh you know in the in, in the colonies of Southeast Asia in the 1890s and so on. Um so I think um when we look at where we are now, um We can look at the decriminalization of psychedelics and all the money that's going into um, psychedelic medicine and we could say, you know, that, uh, well, this is obviously the end of the war on drugs that's all receding. Um, Well, that doesn't look quite the same if your perspective is somewhere in some American uh, inner city and you're looking at the conveyor belts of drug courts and prison, you know, the war on drugs is still grinding on in that world just as much as it is so I think um, in terms of the modern mind where i've sort of tried to locate this book there are really two competing ideas of modernity there's the modernity as it was conceived around 1900 uh which um drugs and you know particularly alcohol uh, intoxication in general was seen as something that had to be controlled if we were going to live in a civilized society of the future and then this other idea of um modernity that we associate with the um uh, psychedelic era, which is that um, our inner experiences and our, you know, um, peak experiences are, are are important to us. So we've got, in a way, I think um, drugs still sit on this fault line between two different versions of modernity and we have these two words in play drugs which was uh, a creation of the years around 1900 which was from the very beginning freighted with all kinds of negative associations Um, this was kind of dangerous drugs or um, uh, you know uh, criminal drugs or inebriating drugs or um, foreign drugs you know and uh, drugs never quite escaped that stigma so I think when people started becoming interested in drug experiences again in the 1950s and 1960s and wanted to talk about, um, you know, the sort of the these mystical and meaningful and valuable experiences, the word drugs was kind of a, a drag on that. So, uh, you know, I think that's why the word psychedelic got picked up so widely. And I think we're still there now, you know, when people want to talk about drugs within this kind of positive, um, progressive viewpoint, um, the word psychedelics is very useful because it uh, separates it from this uh, other older word and its stigmas.
0: Mhm. Yeah, I, um I think our our readers will be really fascinated um, by this history. Because, again, it is it is so rich, um, you know, as one reviewer has written, readers should anticipate quite a trip <laughs> in, this, in this book. Um, and, you know, we've covered, you know, a, a lot of the book and, and there's still so much for our readers to discover. But, you know, thanks you know, so much, Mike, for taking the time out of your day to you know, talk to us about your book and the early experiments of the original Psychonauts.
1: Mm. Oh, a real pleasure, Claire. Thanks very much.
0: So uh, Psychonauts, Drugs, and the Making of the Modern Mind by Mike Jay is now available wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for listening. Please visit us online at yalebooks.com for more episodes of the podcast as well as information about all of our books.